over the last 30 years that I've been a part of the pastoral staff here at Desert Springs, I've seen many evidences of God's transforming power as His rhythms of grace are expressed. One of those came a number of years ago. Our worship pastor at the time had just been with us for a few months. His name, for some of you who know him, is Jim Van Hovel. And Jim came on and had a great, genuine spirit of leading in worship. And we just so loved having him here and his family. But just about three to four months into that, uh, he collapsed. It was evident he had a brain tumor. And after several surgeries, we walked with Jim for four and a half years through his journey as he walked with Christ, but he also taught us to worship in some uncommon ways. As he would be up here on the stage and, and he would have his head shaved and a scar on the side and yet a smile and just talking about his father, his Abba, who is God. Well, one of the side effects of his brain surgeries and he was prone to seizures and he had to take anti-seizure medication and so he couldn't drive. And so frequently we would also take Jim to different places and from the office to home and back and other things. And one day I'd taken Jim home to his neighborhood and, and as we were driving past one of the neighbors that was there, I didn't know him, I'd never met him, his name is Joe. Jim waves at him and I waved at him as we went by. He was out in his yard working uh, on his sprinkler system. And so after I dropped Jim off, we came back and I pulled over to the curb and rolled down the window in my truck. And I, and I basically, like guys do, said something like, hey man, don't you know it's too hot to be doing that type of work right now in the middle of the day? Or, and so he said, yeah. And, and so I said, no, I actually stopped to thank you for how good you and the other neighbors have been to Jim and Frida and their family during this time. And with that, he just dropped what he was doing literally and he walks over to the truck and he comes up to the window, he says, no, you got it wrong. They've been so good to us. And then he asked me this, he says, you know, are you like his brother or something? I said, yeah, kind of. Um, we work together at the church and I'm one of the pastors, he's one of the pastors. He says, really, I've been thinking about coming to that church. I said, you should. And he said, but you got to know, I'm not very religious. And at that, I said, that's awesome. We aren't either. And he just, the ice broke. He started laughing and it, it just it altered the whole conversation. And sure enough, a few weeks later, he said, you know, uh, he said, if I do, you need to be prepared. I hope your insurance is paid up because the roof of the church is probably fall in. Well, he walked through the doors and the roof didn't fall in. And, and he came through and sat here. And that was the beginning of him and his wife beginning to attend here, hearing the good news of Jesus, accepting Jesus as their Savior, being baptized as followers of Jesus. And, and then a life transformation took place. We didn't know at the time, but there were some significant uh, substance abuse issues as well as other addictive behaviors. And they got involved in our Celebrate Recovery program, which is really a discipleship program. And they learned more about their identity in Jesus and they began to walk with him and and became leaders in our Celebrate Recovery program. Now that's the way it should work. People come to know Jesus and they grow in Jesus and then they begin to help other people. That's what the Bible calls discipleship. And that's Christianity. You know, I, I go back to, to Joe's words and I want to tell you, Christianity is not about being religious. It is not. It's not even about religious activities, even if we call it something different like rhythms of grace. Here's what Christianity is genuinely about. It is about learning what Christ has taught. It is about living as Christ lived. And it is about leading other people to know Jesus as well and to grow in him. 
That's called discipleship. We're, we're calling this many times in, in studies on spiritual uh, disciplines or rhythms of grace, they'll talk about study, and it's the importance of the Word of God and that transforming of a person's life. And that's what we want to talk about today. See, Jesus commissioned us to make disciples. When he was with his disciples, he had been with them for three years, he had invested into their lives, and, and now he had been crucified, buried, raised again. It's before he ascends to heaven and he's with his disciples. He gave them what's known as the Great Commission. He commissioned us as well as them to make disciples. Here's what it says in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. If you've got a hard copy, that's great. Uh, you might have an electronic version. You may have a Bible app downloaded on your phone like I do. And uh, it goes ESV and we'll be, you'll be good to go. Or we'll have it on the screen so you can follow if you don't have either of those. Listen to what it says. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now note this, this whole discipleship thing is Jesus, it's under his authority, it's under his directive, it's under his empowerment. No person can make a disciple of someone else except that Jesus said we are to be his agents in doing that. Notice how it starts, Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, and it sandwiches it at the end and said, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Though Jesus is not physically present, his spirit certainly is. And there is really one command in here followed by three different explanations of how to go about doing that. That comes actually from the grammar, and English was not my best subject in school, i got to tell you. But through four years of grad school and then three more years, of, they finally beat that stuff into me. But this is basically in Greek grammar, there's one imperative, there's one command, and it is to make disciples. And it's followed by three participles or attendant circumstances to say this is how you go about making disciples. One command, make disciples. Make learners. Make people who will learn of me and live like me and then will lead others to do that as well. Going, therefore, make disciples. You notice that the emphasis there is that to people who are followers of Jesus, that we're commanded to go to those that don't know Jesus yet, that aren't his disciples yet. People who don't know Jesus aren't commanded to come to church. I don't know if you know that or not. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you're still trying to figure out where Jesus fits in the whole scheme of things, we're so glad you're here. That's awesome. Thank you for coming. And we're thankful that you did take the initiative to come. That's a courageous thing. And the roof hasn't fallen in yet, right? Now, the air conditioner may go out, but that's another story. We've been having some issues with that. But so far, so good. So, but it's going, therefore, whether it's into schools or neighborhoods or families, we as followers of Jesus are directed to go. That's what Jesus said. And that's what he did. He came to earth. We're to follow his example. Going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, when people hear the good news of Jesus, that he loves them, that there's a God that loves them and he wants to have a relationship, but, but they can't because he's holy, they're sinful. He's holy, we're sinful. And, and the issue is there's this great chasm between, well, how's that going to work? God so loved us, the scriptures say, that he bridged that in his son Jesus. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That he loved us so much he just didn't sit in heaven and say, man, I, I sure wish they'd get their act together sometime. Don't they know how much I love them? Instead, Jesus came and took upon flesh. As Eugene Peterson said, moved into the neighborhood. I love that. But there's a point at which, when we hear that, that it's by our faith in Jesus that we need to identify with him. And that's what baptism is. You know, this whole identification thing, if I said to you or showed you the ring that's on my finger, what does this symbol indicate to you if you see this? That I'm married. And I want people to know that. Uh, I love my wife. Uh, it's been 44 years that we've been together as husband and wife. I love her more today than before. It's a great thing to do. And if I'm talking with a woman and, and somehow maybe I'm traveling or she comes in the office and I want to bring inject my wife into the conversation early on because I want to make sure everybody knows I love my wife and I'm thankful she loves me. We see baptism is like this symbol. It is Jesus loves me and I want people to know I love him. And so what happens is you identify with his death and burial. So you go under the water as a believer in Jesus to identify with the death to an old way of life and you come out of the water. And I promise you, anytime we do this, we do bring people back up. Okay, mouth to mouth is not in the picture. We don't have to do that. Okay, bring them back up. Well, that's an identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. And we want people to know that. I was baptized as an infant, like many of you probably were. And in my church, in our tradition, we didn't have a believer's baptism. But as I grew in my faith, I came to understand that when this is being talked about here, it's not something that a child can do because this is after a person's decision to follow Jesus. Now, it's great. We, nothing wrong with that. And we love doing the dedication for Caleb today. And, but this is something different. I want to tell you, if, if you're a believer in Jesus, you know that your sins are forgiven. You've asked him into your heart, but you've never, ever been baptized. Talk with us about that. It's a very important step. And I know sometimes people hesitate, but I have never, ever once had anybody, even with great reservations, going into it afterwards say, man, I wish I hadn't done that. It's just the opposite. It's like, oh, that was awesome. This is great. Let us help you with that. Going, therefore, make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's a third component, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Teaching content is very important. Jesus wants to be, us to teach what he taught it's very important that we do that because there's so many voices that are out there. One of the things that, in preparing for this, that I read that came from a, a text or an email that was sent out from Mark Bailey, who's the president of Dallas Seminary. I'm an alumnus of that school, and so this isn't like a personal email to me from the president of Dallas Seminary. Don't misunderstand. This is going to like thousands, tens of thousands of people. 
But it was really a great perspective when he talked about engaging the culture like Paul did at Mars Hill. And do we know the Bible well enough to talk with people and to share with them and, and even know the culture well enough to have meaningful, logical, intelligent conversations to reason with people about the faith and the hope that we have? Do we know that well enough? And here's one of the reasons he cites that it's important that we do that. He cites a person, Walter Truett Anderson, who's a journalist. Uh, Walter Truett Anderson went to UC Berkeley, went to USC, did graduate studies there, was a, uh, a political science major at UC Berkeley, uh, also a secular, not secular, but a psychological uh, analyst of society. Uh, he's written many books, articles. I have no idea what his faith basis is, but he is an astute observer of what's going on in our culture. Listen to what he says. Never before has any civilization openly made available to its populace such a smorgasbord of realities. Never before has a communication system like the contemporary mass media made information about religion, all religions, available to so many people. Never before has a society allowed its people to become consumers of belief and allowed belief, all beliefs, to become merchandise, like they're hawking their wares. And then Dr. Bailey goes on to say, we have witnessed the collapse of theological literacy and the rise of unabashed belief in America. In essence, what's saying is it's okay to believe whatever you want to believe. That's the message that's out there. You have people that are saying there is no God. You have people saying, no, God's in all places and all things. You have a, an atheist. You have a pluralist. You have people in between. You have all these different voices, and it seems to be like it's okay to believe whatever you believe as long as you're sincere in your belief. But do you notice the things that they're saying are true or contradictory? So which voice do we believe? What do we believe? And can we even speak to that issue? We need to teach content. But it's not just about teaching content. And that's not what the Great Commission is about. It's about teaching conformity to the truth. It's about life change, transforming to the image of Jesus. It's not just learning what Jesus taught, it's living like Jesus lived. And I would add, for the reasons that Jesus did it. It's a different belief system and a different behavioral system. That's a part of the Great Commission. Robert Coleman, in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, said this about obedience. And he talked first about how Jesus selected a group of people. His master plan was to work through a relatively small group, not through the masses, but through a small group of people who would then represent him to the masses for a much longer period of time. Jesus only had three years, and he invested them for the most part in this small group, and none of them were influential. None of them were well-educated, societal, uh, respected in society, rich, all the things the world counts as greatness. And here's what he says. Jesus expected the men he was with to obey him. They were not required to be smart, but they had to be loyal. This became the distinguishing mark by which they were known. They were called disciples, meaning that they were learners or pupils of the master. See, that's the issue. That's what disciple is, is a learner. 
someone who also learns but also adheres to the example of the one that's teaching them. It's obedience. Years ago, even when I was in high school, um, many years ago, I heard of a guy, his name was Nicky Cruz. Some of you that are older may know of the name and of David Wilkerson. Nicky Cruz has since been a subject of a movie many years ago called The Cross and the Switchblade, and he wrote his biography in uh, Run, Baby, Run. So you can find out more about it or go online and check it out. It's really an interesting story of God's grace. But he grew up in a home in Puerto Rico that was a very abusive home. There was a lot of occultism, spiritism that was going on. His mother actually referred to him as the son of Satan at different times, and I think she thought that was a good thing. And at 15, he left Puerto Rico to go to New York City to live with some relatives, and that didn't seem to be much better, so as he ran away from home at 15, and he joined another family. It was a street gang called the Mau Mau's. As he was there, he quickly rose through the ranks, even as a teenager, to where he was seen as one of their warlords because he was aggressive, he took initiative, he was vicious. He set the stage for whatever they were seeking to do. There was a lawlessness and a rebelliousness that was there within his life. And then he was confronted by a street preacher. His name is David Wilkerson, and he came and preached on the streets, and he had an evangelistic tent type of thing, and he invited these guys to it. He worked to build a relationship, and in the process, they saw this as a, a threat to them in their way of life, and Nicky Cruz threatened his life at one point. And David Wilkerson, with great uncommon grace and, and, and with the power of the Holy Spirit, reportedly said to him, Nicky, you could cut me into a thousand pieces and throw me through the streets. And every one of those pieces would cry out to you, Jesus loves you. Nicky Cruz came to faith in Jesus because he had never experienced that type of grace, that type of love, that type of confidence, that type of perseverance. And he began to study the Bible and he wanted to grow and he wanted to tell others. And, and yet there was something in his life that actually scared David Wilkerson more than talking with him about his need for Jesus. And that was his relationship with his girlfriend. Because it was just normal life for them to live together and have sex together and do all the things that, but they're not married. David Wilkerson comes to him with fear and trepidation and says, Nikki, I, I need to talk with you about this. And that is, you're studying the Bible and you want to be in ministry, and, but the Bible says that it's not God's will for you to be involved sexually with someone that you're not married to. Instead of being angry, Nikki Cruz looked at him and says, really? I never knew that. Why didn't you tell me? You see, the bigger issue in his life was already resolved. If he knew that it was God's will, he was determined to do it. That's a true disciple. To observe, to obey all things that I've commanded you. In our Bible churches, sometimes we get that confused. We think that life transformation will happen the more we know, the godlier we will be, and it doesn't work that way. Matter of fact, for some of us, the more we know, the prouder we become, the more arrogant we become, the more judgmental we become like the Pharisees that Jesus had such a hard time with. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. You know, unfortunately, this is, we, say, we would agree, and most of you would say, yeah, Rick, you preach, I'll turn the pages. That's what we need to be about as a church. We need to do discipleship. We need to see life transformation and all like that, and let's go for it. But unfortunately, it really is a weakness in the modern church, especially in America. 
It's not just my anecdotal observation, though I see it. Many authors that I've read and, and pollsters and others would say the same thing. Bill Hull wrote a book entitled Jesus Christ, Disciple Maker. Listen to what he says. There is probably no other more primary matter of negligence in the church today than our failure to follow the Lord's command to develop disciples. Let me hit the pause button there. Most of us have treated this as the great suggestion, not the great commission. It's a command. It's not open for discussion. Because of this gross neglect, many Christians think of themselves as an audience to be entertained rather than an army ready to march. And he goes on to say that a disciple means a learner, a pupil, someone who learns by following. The word implies an intellectual process, that's learning, that directly affects the lifestyle of the person that's living. Learning what Jesus taught, living like Jesus lived so that we make a difference. There is a difference that's observable. And yet, that doesn't seem to be the case. Study after study that I read seems to say that there's not a lot of difference between those who profess to know Jesus and those that are, don't profess to know him. George Barna, a Christian pollster, wrote a book, The Habits of Highly Effective Churches, and one of those effective, one of those habits that he says should be there is facilitating systematic theological Growth. In other words, understanding the Bible so that we know who God really is and how God wants us to live. That's theological growth. Here's what he says. The Christian church seeks to be many things, but among the most important of its functions is to develop people. If life transformation is the essence of the task facing the local church, then theological education is certainly a core element within that challenge. Perhaps that is why I find the deep-rooted ignorance of Christians about their faith to be so disturbing. This problem is pervasive within the community of believers. Christians don't know the content of their faith and show little concern about their ignorance. This lack of spiritual knowledge and wisdom has resulted in a body of believers that is both incapable of applying their faith in daily circumstances and unable to persuasively share their faith with those who desperately need it. The superficiality of Christians' faith is evident in their lifestyles and their general absence from discussions of religious thought and life that should naturally occur in the public square. He goes on to say, our research concludes that fewer than 10% of all born-again Christians possess a biblical worldview that informs their thinking and changes their behavior. That's a, a scandalous indictment. And it's of born-again believers. So how do we reverse this trend? Well, first of all, we need to recognize that there, and I'm going to rip through these points, so buckle your seatbelt, all right? First of all, we need to recognize there's differing maturity levels in the family of God. There's people who don't know Jesus yet, but who are spiritually sensitive and seeking, and if you're here and you fall into that, thank you. I'm so glad you're here. This is a great place. That's a courageous step. There's other people who are babies in Christ, who are infants, who have just come to know Jesus, and they're growing in him, but as an infant would grow. And there's others that are further down the line. You might say they're a young child or adolescent, and they're growing. They're beginning to learn to do some things for themselves. They're beginning to learn to read the Bible for themselves. They're not always dependent on somebody else. And then there's people who are more adult or spiritually mature, 
And they're ones who are not only taking responsibility for their spiritual well-being and growth, they're reaching back to help others come to know Jesus and grow in him. That's what adults do, isn't it? Not just focused on their needs, especially a parent. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and I'm not going to read all of this, but I'm gonna, you can look at it on the screen. I'm going to tell you that as John is writing to this group of people, he identifies three different groups. He says, I'm writing to you little children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you fathers, because you know him. And walking with him. I'm writing to you young men because you're strong and you're fighting the evil one. You see, there's at least three different maturity levels that he addresses. So that's a normal, healthy thing. A lot of our criticisms and frustration with each other in the body of Christ, I think, could go away if we just understood that in the family of God, there's different maturity levels. And some people who are brand new Christians, their babies have messes. I don't know if that's a newsflash to anybody you got to change some dirty diapers, right? Now, if you have walked with Jesus for 30 years and you're still having the same messes in your life, that's a problem. That's called carnality, fleshliness. You're not growing or maturing. Your growth has been stunted because of a lack of obedience. That's a whole different issue. But as we grow in Christ, as we mature in him, we ought to be less and less concerned about my needs and my wants and my preferences because I'm much more concerned about helping others to grow in Jesus. That's maturity. Let's move on. In order to mature spiritually, we also need to learn and apply both things, the truth of God's word. First Peter 2.2, 2, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants. And that's regardless of our maturity level. Our heart should be like a newborn infant. I long to hear the truth of God's word. I long for the milk and, of God's word. And even as a more mature person, it's saying, look, you still need the meat that's there, the depth that, that's there, but that attitude should be such a passionate longing like an infant longs for that life-giving milk. So we should look at the word of God. Not as drudgery, not as monotony, not as boredom. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have trusted and tasted that the Lord is good. Leroy Iams said this in the book, The Lost Art of Disciple Making. In order to help a new Christian to grow, you must teach him the word of God, but also teach him how to dig into it for himself. There's sometimes when I hear people, especially older saints, who complain and leave churches and go to other churches because I'm not being fed, and they leave good Bible-teaching churches. Honestly, there's times I want to say, you've been a Christian how long? 40 years? When are you going to ever learn to get out of the high chair and learn to feed yourself? Now, I don't say that because I value my job too much, but, <laughs> but there's just things you want to say. It's not about, is there good food? It's, I don't like the way it's prepared. I wish it was this style, and I prefer this teacher. You know, when I looked in the book of Corinthians, he said, that's carnality. I am a Paul. I am Cephas. I'm Apollos. And I could mention other current Bible teachers, but it's about Jesus. It's not about the person who's opening the word. It's not even about the way that they open it. It's, is the truth being given? We need to learn and apply. We also need to find 
spiritually mature. If we want to mature spiritually, we need to look for and follow godly examples. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then 1 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 7, he says, our gospel came to you. And he's talking to new believers here. Not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake? And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, but with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Acacia, meaning the Mediterranean area. It was so great to dedicate children, and little Caleb Ketsy is awesome. Thanks for allowing us to do that. I can promise you that little Caleb is going to learn a lot more from what he sees in A.J. and Ketsy than what he hears from them. And it certainly is not the church's job to be the primary religious educators. We only have them for how many hours? You know, no matter how great our, our Adventure Kids program is, our Splash Camp, our preschool, they do an awesome job. And I can brag on them because I, all I do is stay back and say, sick them, you guys are going after it. But you know what? We can't do that. The church can't do that. We are partners with the parents. Well, the same thing is true spiritually. We all need to be involved in one another's lives, providing positive examples of Christ-likeness. That's better, as they say, caught than taught. In order to mature spiritually, we also increasingly love and serve others. As we get older, and this is incremental, we need to be learning it. When our kids were growing up, we wanted to give them jobs to do when they were very young, but they were age-appropriate jobs. And that increased with responsibility as they got older. The same thing is true spiritually. We need to grow, and in order to grow, we have to have some type of job to do, using the gifts, the abilities, the resources that God's given to us to help others, and when we do that, it honors God. That's a natural part. It's not being a spectator, it's being involved. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, it's a long passage. I'm not going to take the time to read it because you guys want to go to lunch today. Here's what it says in gist. God gave gifted individuals, including pastors and teachers, to do the work of the ministry. Right? Is that what it says on the screen? It's not there. Okay, that's it. Is that what it says? No. It says God gave pastors and teachers to equip the saints, that's believers, to do the work of the ministry. Theoretically, if you say, someone says, how many ministers does your church have? It should be, how many members does your church have? We all should have some role in doing that. Because as each part does its part, the body grows up in love. That's what this passage says. That whole concept of equipping, that's a word that's used for discipleship. To equip in non-theological context. For instance, in the Bible in places, this same Greek word is used, but it doesn't have theological overtones. It's just a part of the story. And it talks about fishermen who are mending their nets. Same word for equipping. In non-theological context and outside of the Bible, in classical Greek, you'll see this exact same word used of a doctor or a surgeon that mends or sets a broken bone. 
To equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, in essence, is this. It's to restore to useful service. I don't know if you know this or not, but every one of us, and especially the one that's in this pulpit, we're broken people. We are damaged goods. But God loves us so much that he sees that within us, and he works to restore us to a place of useful service. Never discount the grace and the work of God in this. That's what he calls us to do. Now, I want to tell you, as we go through, we're going to be committed. And you're, come to this vision meeting that we have coming up in September or in August, and then be a part of the celebration in September. But understand that going forward, as we have been historically for 40 years, we're going to be committed to learning, to teaching, to living the Word of God, and to seeking to lead other people in the same fashion. I want you to be a part of that. Do you think that you really have enough biblical knowledge? See, there's a responsibility for the student to get involved. We're going to have and already have Bible studies. We have men's studies, women's studies. We have Sunday morning studies. We have community groups where the Word of God is studied. We're going to be ramping that up in October and encourage you to be a part of that. Caleb is going to open his group to people that may not have been a part of that before. And if you feel like, well, I just don't know enough, I'd be embarrassed. You're in a great place. I would love to have the time with you to help you with some of the real foundational and basic things of, of the faith of, in, in Jesus and how to grow in him. But starting where you are, that's all going to be coming down in October. Please listen to that and participate. Get involved so that you can know the word and long for it like a newborn infant longs for the mother's milk that's there.